All right, that's good. Those are the children in our children's ministry right over in the next building. Our youth, of course, every first Sunday of the month, join us here in Big Church. So youth, thank you for being here today, joining in with us and uh, just keeping us energized. We appreciate you. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. If you need one, there's somebody bringing one right down the aisle. Just raise your hand and they will bring you a Bible. If you need to, you can keep it, take it home with you. We want you reading God's Word. Just raise your hand. Don't be shy. And uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We are followers of Jesus. We need one more right up here in the front. There we go. All right. So as followers of Jesus, we do the same as his first followers did, which they watched Jesus and they saw that prayer was important to him, that prayer is talking to God. And they took note that Jesus took time to pray. And that they saw prayer was a priority in his life. And they asked him to teach them to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And uh, so he did. And we're going to be looking at that prayer. I was reading some of Pastor John Piper's input on prayer. And he said, there are five things you can do when you pray. So this is extra. You can, if you want to, you can write this on your note page where you can think about these things. Here's the five things that you can do when you pray. We can ask for stuff or for favors. So we ask. Number two, we can praise God. So we ask or we praise God. Number three, we can thank God for his gifts and for his acts and his blessings in our life. So we can ask for stuff. We can praise God. We can thank God. Number four, we can confess our sin and our shortcomings and ask God for his forgiveness. And then also number five, ready? We can complain. I don't know why that one's funny. Maybe maybe it's our confession that, yes, we do, in fact, complain. So... All those five things, to, to ask, to praise, to thank, to confess, and to complain. Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, so it, it begs the question, how, how, do you, how do you start? How do you pray? Uh, you don't start with you. It's not about you. Start with God. And Jesus did that in his model prayer here. Uh, he, he basically points out that followers of Jesus start with God's identity and God's priority. So look what he says in verse uh, 9. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. So when we, I mean, this is a radical prayer, really, to pray our Father, to actually pray to God and to call him Father. Um, I mean, God's called many things in the Old Testament. Rarely in the Old Testament is he referred to as Father. I don't know if anybody actually prayed to him in Old Testament times as Father. But Jesus called God Father a lot. I mean, just in the Sermon on the Mount, he has more references to, to God the Father. Look at starting chapter 5, verse um, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Or in verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Verse 48, that you may be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or even starting right here in chapter 6, it's over and over. Verse 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will not have your reward from your Father in heaven. Or verse 4, do your giving in secret. Then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Or verse 6, the same thing, pray in secret. Then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Or verse 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So, and then verse 9, our Father who art in heaven. So, I mean, I don't know if you get the point here, but at least six times here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God your Father. 
I mean, this is radical. It, it's, it's not been people's primary way to relate to God, to think of him as a family member who cares for them and loves them and has adopted them and includes them in his family and, and takes care of their needs. But it was for Jesus. When he was 12 years old, the first time anything in the Bible is recorded that Jesus said it, he's in Jerusalem with his parents, probably at his bar mitzvah. Somehow he gets separated from his mom and dad, and they head for home thinking he's in the group somewhere. And then they race back to Jerusalem and look for him for one day, two days, three days. They finally find him in the temple. And when his mother suggests that maybe it was Jesus' fault they got separated or he's been so hard to find, he says, well, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And then when he was hanging on the cross at the end of his life, Jesus made seven different statements while he hung in agony. And the first and the last one both start with Father. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then just before he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my soul. So from first to last, Jesus is in relationship with God his Father and invites us to claim God as our Father as well. I mean, think of the implications of that. He said, didn't, didn't say, now pray like this, my father. He said, our father. That it's something that we enter into as a community, that we're each related to God, but that we're his children together, that we're family with one another. We have connections between us. We're related. And then we also see, though, if God is our father, we've been adopted that we've come to Jesus Christ and we've asked him to forgive our sin and to be our savior and God forgives. But more than that, he adopts us. We go from being condemned orphans with no hope to being adopted children with no fear. I mean, here, here's how God does it. You come before God, you've got your mistakes, you've had your rebellion and because of his justice, he can't just dismiss your sin. But because of his love, he, he won't just dismiss you. So as an act of love, which nobody saw coming, he took our punishment on himself on the cross for our sin. God's justice and love are equally honored. And you, God's creation, you're forgiven. Praise God. But the story doesn't end there. It gets better than that. It doesn't end with the forgiveness. John 1.12 tells us, to all who received him who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. God does more than give, clear your name. He gives you his name. That's why we're called Christian, little Christ. I mean, God does more than just set you free. He adopts you and brings you into his family. Now, you've heard of unplanned pregnancies, but anybody here ever heard of an unplanned adoption? Yeah, it's, it's rarer and never heard of. I mean, adoptive parents understand God's passion about adoption. They know that feeling of empty space inside, of a longing, of setting out on a mission, of uh, having to search and to pay and to wait and to pay and to wait and to wait and to finally get to hold a little baby to take the responsibility for this child who has a, perhaps has a spotted past, certainly has issues, and maybe has a discounted future. Cindy and I tried to adopt one time. We, we already had three small children, but, you know, when three, what's four? 
And we heard of a damsel in distress, and she was going to give her baby up for adoption, but she did want people to send her an application, and she was going to look at different options. So we put an application together, and we told our other family members, and they tried to discourage us, and it was discouraging, but we put our application in anyway. And uh, we got information about the mother and about the father and as much as we could about the baby and the situation. We were so hopeful. I mean, our hearts were starting to grow with love towards this little person who hadn't even been born yet. I mean, I'm thinking, uh, Cindy's the best mom in the world, so what's one more? I mean, even the older ones probably can help, you know, with the little one coming along, because they all start at the beginning. And um, we were eager to hold this baby and call her our own. But when the birth mother gave birth, she gave the baby to somebody else. And she thought our family was big enough. We didn't think she needed to have an opinion on that, but um, our hearts were broken with disappointment. I mean, we were crushed. And you know from your own life, and the Bible tells you that you were in distress, that the choices you had made along the way had severed your relationship with God, and God knew that, that you had problems you couldn't solve and that you were in distress. And so God sought you, and he found you, and he paid the price, and he signed the papers, and he took you home. Do you know why? Because. That's why. Because. God our Father adopted you because, just because. It says in Ephesians 1, starting verse 3, in fact, read it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, according to the pleasure of his will. That's the operative phrase. God adopted you just because he wanted to. And you thought you were adopted because you're cute or because you're good looking or because he needed your money or he needed your wisdom. Sorry, God God doesn't need any of that. He just adopted you because he wanted to, because it was his pleasure to do so, because it was his goodwill. He knew full well in advance the trouble that you would cause and the price he would have to pay for you. So he signed his name next to yours. In fact, he changed your name and he took you home. God adopted you and became your father. God our father adopted you by paying for you himself. See, adoption isn't something you earn. You receive it. It's a gift. Adoption agencies don't train children in how to recruit parents. They seek parents who want to adopt children. The parents make the call. The parents fill out the paperwork. The parents endure the interviews. The parents pay the fee. The parents wait and wait and wait. Can you imagine a prospective parent uh, getting in the adoption process and then saying, well, we would like to adopt Johnny, but first we want to know a few things. Does he have any money for clothing or shelter or food or uh, you know, lodging or braces or transportation or college? Does he have a house? Can he prepare food or at least wash dishes? Can he fix his own clothes? Will he promise to never be any trouble to us and always appreciate what we do for him? (laughs) That conversation has never happened. 
That'd be ridiculous. You don't adopt Johnny for what he has. You adopt Johnny for what he needs. He needs love. He needs a family. He needs a place to belong. He needs some care. He needs a home. Same is true with God. He saw you with all those needs. He didn't adopt you because of what you can accomplish because of your wit or because of your wallet or because of your wisdom. Adoption is something you receive. It's not something you earn. So think about it. If you can't earn your adoption by outstanding performance, you can't lose it through poor performance either because God is our Father and He's the loving Father. And sometimes relationships with our Father get strained, even with our earthly Father. We make poor choices. We have the wrong attitude. We push the boundaries. We fail to appreciate what we've been given or we take it for granted or we feel cheated or slighted by the people we're in relationship with. Sometimes we even feel that way about God. I have a younger brother and sister, and they were still at home. I was off uh, to college, but they decided, they were little, and they decided that their situation had gone from bad to worse. In fact, it was so bad, they decided we're going to run away from home. Somehow word about that got out in advance, and instead of thwarting it, my parents actually encouraged it. And I'm not quite sure why, but anyway, they helped them get ready to run away. They had a rebellion going in their little hearts, and instead of stopping them, my dad said, let me help you. Tell you what, here's an idea. Why don't you run away to the church? It's about three miles away, and uh, at least you'd have a roof that could be over your head when you get there. And so they got their little backpacks loaded with all their favorite toys. I'm not sure they even remembered water. And uh, they headed out the door. And they walked and they walked and they walked and they walked. And finally they did make it to the church. They were tired. They were thirsty. Their feet hurt. It was starting to get dark and cold. And they wondered, what's going to be for dinner? We don't have any money. And at some point they came to their senses. They went and they borrowed a phone. And they said, can you come give us a ride home? What do you think my dad said? Of course, he said, well, sure, I love you, you're mine. Now, Jesus told a similar story in Luke 15 about a dad who had two sons, and one came to him with the uh, uh, audacious request, Dad, give me what's going to be mine in the inheritance when you die. And the dad did it. And it's not long after that, that young man took off for the far country, just took the inheritance and took off, and he squandered it. He wasted it. He played the game, how low can you go? He bought some friends. He, he wasted the money. He squandered it, and pretty soon there's a famine in the land. Now he's hungry. He's out of money. All of his purchased friends have disappeared, and he finds himself feeding pigs, and he's envious of the pig food. He's so hungry. And finally the story turns when it says, and he came to his senses. And he prepared an apology, and he began the long walk home. And his father saw him coming. And in Luke 15, it says, The father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. He's alive again. He's lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Wouldn't it be wonderful to read the next line in the text, And they all lived happily ever after. Didn't work that way. Because it was like real, more like real life. 
So the older brother isn't at home and his cell phone isn't working. And uh, so they start the party without him. And when he finally gets there and he hears the music inside and the festivities and he asks and somebody tells him, your brother's come back and your dad has killed a fattened calf and we are celebrating your brother who's dead is now alive. He didn't join in. He got mad. And he refused to go in. So once again, the father is the one to reach out above and beyond to offer grace and forgiveness and to work towards reconciliation because that's what dads do. And that's what this dad did. And that's what our heavenly father does. And Jesus said, our father, because like the two sons in the story, they don't get along with each other. Sometimes we don't get along with each other. And the father loves them both. And one son goes to the far country and wastes everything. And one stays right there at home and wastes everything because he never adopts the father's spirit of compassion and generosity. And the father loves them both. And that's what God does for us. Not because of us, but because of who God is. He's our father who's in heaven. And heaven here isn't so much a location as much as a, as a pointing out that, that, that God is the authority. God has the power. And our God, our Father, rules the universe. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a, set a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. His rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of the... And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens declare the glory of God. Nature is God's workshop. I mean, the sky is his resume. You want to know who God is? Look at the heavens. Pretty spectacular moon this week, don't you think? God had fun with that one. Who got to see it? Show pictures to the rest of us, would you? I mean, to think what God has done. I mean, you, you want to know God's power? Take a look at his creation. In fact, back in the Old Testament... There's a story where King Solomon is building the grandest house for God. It was built in ancient Israel, but it was probably the, the grandest house that has ever been built for God in the history of the world. It is no comparison to the one we're doing. Well, there's one little shred, one little point where we're the same. King David had been king 40 years, and he had wanted to build that for God, and he had saved all of his treasures to be spent on that. In today's dollars, that... A uh, house of God would have cost billions of dollars, with a B, billions. Ours is nowhere close to that. In fact, the only comparison is it took 13 years to build, and we've been 13 years getting ours started. That's it. Okay? Solomon is building with gold, silver, and precious stones, and uh, he, he's wanting to make something magnificent to make a statement. Ours is going to be a workhorse, a nice place that we can gather and gather with people and talk, talk about Jesus, and so we have a different purpose. But here's what Solomon actually said in advance. He said, the temple I'm going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, can't contain him? And he's right. No one can build a house that's big enough or good enough for God. Not even the highest heavens can hold him. God is so awesome. He is so great. He's so big. 
what controls you doesn't control him. He never gets tired. He's never surprised. He's not bound by time. he's, He's untainted by the atmosphere of sin. He's not locked into the timeline of history. He's able to soar above or plunge beneath or step around the troubles of this earth. And so we pray to him because he's our father in heaven. We're armed with the knowledge that God's in heaven. So spend some time walking and talking to God this week. Seeing, looking at what God has made. Watch, watch how in the process that your own prayers aren't more energized to realize God's pretty big. He's pretty awesome. And of all the things he could do, he thought of me and he loves me. He loves you. He created you. He forgives you. He adopted you. He saved you. He placed you in relationships. He resources you and he welcomes you back when you run away. And God loves to hear you share your thoughts with him in prayer. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I don't know if we can get the back half fully unpacked here, but, you know, names are important. And when we pray, our Father, hallowed be their name, we need to recognize that names are important to God as well. There are dozens of names of God in the Bible. In fact, one of our Sunday school classes right in its meeting right now with Dave Rook, they're going through the names of God. They have been for, I don't know, a couple years, and they're nowhere near the end of it. But each name for God explains something else about his nature or about his character. And, and, and that's the Scripture does that with names. They connect it to a person, and, and so the person or their character or their attributes uh, are represented in their name. For instance, when I speak the name Billy Graham, immediately there comes uh, to mind a a person who served God all of his life and still continues to to praise God and to pray. In fact, he's turning 100 this November, and he has stood the test of time for over 50 years, has preached to millions of people about the love of Jesus, and he has lived a life the entire time above reproach in public and in private. Well, this word hallowed, Hallowed be your name means to sanctify or to revere or to make and keep something holy. So it's to have a reverence, a respect. It's set apart as special. So I thought, well, that word, when I started studying it, well, this word's kind of archaic. I mean, who used hallowed in, the, in any sentence this week? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. And, and then, the, wouldn't you know, Monday I opened the paper, or, and they're talking about they're going to have the State of the Union address in the hallowed halls of con- Congress. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there's the word. So it does show up in English, okay? Um, now, I think it's kind of an oxymoron to apply it to, to, to Congress and the halls. Not that they're not great or important or beautiful or expensive, but hallowed? Not with this definition. Because it means holy or separate. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Father, you are pure, you're untainted, you're unpolluted. And you're separate from anything on earth that's sinful or wicked or profane. And God is pure. And he's not consumed like we are with petty concerns or jealousies or irrational angers or warped thinking. And he is worthy of our honor and praise. There is power in his name. There is salvation in his name. There is hope in his name. And God's people pray to God to use their lives and to bring God glory because God is holy and powerful and awesome and hopeful. In fact, David said it this way, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Paul said it like this, 
Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us to triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You ever walked into a house and somebody's cooking your favorite and you can just smell it? I know when I get up, I want the kids to get up in the morning. I just start cooking the bacon, right? Just to get the smell started. And what he's saying here is when we, when we are in Christ, we represent God. We, we've been adopted into his family. We've got his name. And so now we're out there as representatives. Hey, isn't that one of his kids? Yeah, isn't he from that such, such and such, such family? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. That's our job, whether it's in Cuba or across the street, whether it's in India or, or at work. Our job as his adopted children as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, his son, is to share the good news with the whole world. So I want to challenge you on that, to start to make a list and to pray for people you know who need to know about Jesus, and then to find the courage to start speaking to them one at a time this year. God can use you, and he can use me as his children, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Shall we pray? Dear God, we thank you for Jesus, for the insights he gives us into the heart of God, for how he gets us aligned properly with thinking about you and putting you right at the top and starting with you and realizing that we're in relationship with you, but it also puts us in relationship with each other. So we need to deal with that. And that you are holy and that we can, we can look to the heavens and we can see that you are awesome and powerful. And it gives us hope when we think that you have reached out to us and adopted us and love us. So help us to respond in appropriate ways to you this morning, to give you our hearts, to put you in charge to connect with other people, to serve the Lord with gladness and to be that fragrance of Christ so that when people see us, they, they reflect on Jesus and they give God the glory. Thank you for being our Father. Amen.